Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, Revoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Truth and Justice. This is your Friday follow-up episode for Season 6, Episode 26, where we heard Herman Melgar's interview. And also in this week's episode, we're going to be covering your questions and comments from Episode number 25, where we heard all about the very thorough investigation of Harris County Detective Sean Carazal. So it's been a couple of weeks. Uh, I was gone for a week, and then when I got back, Mike was out of town on vacation. So we are behind the eight ball, and we need to get this thing done. So let's go ahead and get started with questions. Let's do it, Bob. Texas Ranger James Holland is a legendary interrogator. They call him the serial killer whisperer. You can't hide those indications, and that's why yesterday I knew that he did it. But now, shocking interrogation tapes reveal how the super cop really operates. And that's why they asked me to come in, because I'm special. From something else, The Marshall Project and Sony Music Entertainment, this is Smokescreen. Just say you're sorry. Listen and follow on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, our first question comes from Talena. Do you know if Sandra yelled out help or help me in English or in Spanish? I believe she said it in English based on all prior episodes. For those who say she set all this up herself and planned for her in-laws to find her, I would think she would yell for help in Spanish since she would know who was entering the house and that they usually only spoke in Spanish. The fact that she yelled it in English indicates that she had no idea who was there, thereby further disproving, or at least casting further doubt on, the notion that it was all her masterminding. What do you think, Bob? I guess I'll start with saying that I don't think it necessarily matters. You know, whether she said it in English or Spanish, I don't think it it tells us a whole lot. I think that in a panic situation, someone is going to say whatever comes natural to them. I mean, yes, Sandy was aware that the, the Melgars were Spanish speakers. But I don't necessarily think that would have crossed her mind. But that being said, she did say it in English. If you listen to the interviews that I did with Herman uh, and Maria, you heard both of them while speaking Spanish. They said they heard her saying, help, help. They didn't use the Spanish word for help. They said, help, help, because she said it in English. Okay, next, Margie says, is it typical for the person questioning witnesses to know zero about the crime scene? Herman's questioning was ridiculously confusing because the officer could not comprehend there were two closets. I mean, no, it's not. But remember, this wasn't like a police interrogation or it, it wasn't an investigative interview, I should say. 
which was, as I've said from season or episode one of this season, has been a frustration of mine that nobody ever interviewed them. And, you know, when Barnett was on, she said, no, 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 the police did interview, and they, and they did, but this was not an investigative interview. This was just recording a statement. That's all this was. And, yeah, I mean, you probably want somebody that knows a little bit more about it, but it's not entirely necessary. And the thing is, though, with Garcia, I think that, uh, and I think I actually said this in, in Sunday's episode coming up, too, but I think that the reason he was tapped to do this was simply because he was bilingual. I think of all the other people on the crime scene, I mean, any of the officers could have taken this, but I think Garcia was bilingual, and that's why they asked him. So it's not, you know, I I, I don't want to throw any shade at Garcia. It's I don't think he necessarily did anything wrong. I think he was doing the best he could. He just didn't have, he hadn't been in the crime scene, I don't think. I don't think he had done any kind of investigation. They just said, likely, from what I've seen on crime scenes that I've worked on, you know, they would have said, okay, well, we need to get a statement from these two witnesses. And since they only speak Spanish, they probably said, Deputy Garcia, can you take the statements? And that was that was, that was the extent of it, I'm sure. Shelley says, could some of the confusion between the detectives and Herman be due to differences in dialect? Yeah, it could be. I mean, there's I, I, I don't know what Deputy Garcia's background is or his or where his Spanish dialect comes from. I mean, it, he could be from Mexico. He could be from Colombia. He could be anywhere. I don't know. Uh, I know that the Melgars came from Guatemala and their dialect is slightly different than that of someone who, say, came from Mexico or somewhere else. I didn't notice in both listening to the Spanish version of the interview and uh, reading and listening to the English translation, I didn't catch that he wasn't understanding. You know, I, I don't think there was a dialect. There was a couple a couple things where we heard that, like when we heard the interview with, um, uh, what was his name, Cesar Espinoza, the mm-hmm. guy that worked with Jim at the school. You know, he couldn't he couldn't think of the word cane, but remember he was trying to speak English to I think it was Carazal. Um and he was trying to think of what is the English word for that, but I, I didn't hear anything like that in Herman's interview. Richard says, How could Carazal get away with admitting that he had made a report and then as soon as Mac wanted to introduce it into evidence, he said he didn't write it. It's obvious perjury. He didn't say he didn't write it. I mean it it's it's just dishonest tactics, in my opinion, and how that went down. And and Basically, he didn't want to acknowledge what was in the report. Barnett didn't want him to acknowledge what was in the report. And so they made it so the report couldn't get in. And all it took was, you know, just saying, you know, I'm not sure. I'm not sure who wrote that. I'm not sure. You know, it. it I'm, I'm rambling because I'm trying to remember that was two weeks ago. But, you know, essentially, yeah, Mac showed him the report. He said, is this yours? Yes. Are these your words? Yes. Did you type that? Yes. And then Colleen Barnett takes him on, on uh, Bordier. And he says, nope, I'm not familiar with that. Nope, I'm not sure who wrote that. So I don't know. I I feel like I, I, I'm i not a lawyer, so I don't know what could be done there. It would seem to me that the judge should have interjected there, I would think. But again, I'm not a lawyer. I don't know what the procedure. I've never I've, I've read a lot of trial transcripts. I've never seen that happen before. So I don't know. And I can't imagine it very commonly is something that happens. I would have thought that when Barnett objected to coming in because he didn't know that the judge would have overruled that because he had already said that he wrote it, but that's just not what happened. Okay, we've got a couple questions from Karen. First, Garcia interviewed Herman at the house at 8.49 p.m. Is that routine? Why didn't Garcia have him show him or walk him through the crime scene? It's not like they were collecting any evidence. Well, I mean, that's not entirely true. I think the, the CSIs were on the scene, I think, by then. Uh, the crime scene was secured. So, you know, I don't I don't think it was out of the ordinary. I think it is. I would say, yes, it is routine. They they didn't interview him. I don't think inside the house. I believe it was outside. I know they said they waited like outside in police cars. 
Um, but yeah, I mean, there there was the scene hadn't either the scene hadn't been processed yet or it was in the process of being processed. And so, no, you wouldn't want to take anybody back into that scene. You'd want to keep it completely secure. Next, she writes, when did Herman get to speak to Sandy? Uh, not till a couple of days later. I mean, there was so there wasn't like conversations between the two of them. Uh, you know, there, there there was no Herman asking her what happened. But there was communication between the two of them as, you know, for example, like I know from talking to both of them that Sandy was made aware of the fact there was a chair blocking the door because as as Herman was getting it, you know, she's crying help. And, and he's saying, where are you? And she's I'm in the closet. And he saw the chair and he's realized she, she was in the closet. And then, you know, he's as he's moving the chair, he's he's just saying so these aren't conversations, but he's saying, hey, hang on, there's a chair in the way. You know, obviously, he's, he's speaking in Spanish when he's saying that. But he's, he's, you know, hang on, there's a chair in the way he's moving it and I'm coming, I'm coming. So there were some interactions there. And that's why you have where, where Sandy knows a little bit and, and Herman knows a little bit, but neither of them really have the full picture because they didn't ever sit down and have a conversation. Everything was happening very, very fast, I think, during that time. Uh, remember, you have, you have Maria who followed Herman and then noticed Jim and went and looked, saw he was dead, went all the way out to the street, talked to the neighbor, told her to call 911, came back in. Met up with Herman. Herman leaves. You know, in the meantime, Monica and Marissa are traveling to the house. All of this is happening very, very, very quickly. But the first time they actually spoke was uh, the conversation where we heard a few weeks ago where Sandy said to Marissa or asked Marissa about her friend because that, that was a few days later where they all met at uh, Herman and Maria's house to sit down and have dinner together. Next, she says, did Herman see the quote mystery man? I'm not sure what they're talking about as far as mystery man, if it's the... I would assume it's the uh, photographer that was seen in the crime scene. Um, yeah, I mean, so yeah, so we saw the, and we don't even know if it's a photographer, but yeah, when when you and I talked to him down in Houston, he said that on his way out, he saw somebody coming in with a camera. So, so yeah, yeah, he saw him. I don't know if they're talking about him or if they're talking about the guy I was calling Randy or I don't know. I don't understand exactly what the question is, but I guess I'll answer it that way. If, if that's who you're talking about. Uh, the the neighbor guy or the guy that, from the neighborhood that was outside acting strange. Her, if Herman saw him, he doesn't remember that or he has no recollection of seeing uh, a strange guy outside. And last she asks, did law enforcement or Sandy's team ever interview Jim's mom to corroborate Sandy's story that the family was meeting at their house for dinner? No, no, they, they didn't interview anyone. They didn't even interview Herman and Maria. No other family members other than Liz who called them and wanted to talk uh, none of the other family members were ever interviewed, and even Herman and Maria were never interviewed by the detectives in an investigative interview. Ellen says, okay, so Herman says hands a lot more than arms, and a certain other podcast says that Bob is deliberately misrepresenting Herman's words. I don't believe Bob is doing that at all. Refresh my memory. When was it that the way Sandy was tied with arms at 90 degree angles revealed? Well, to go back to the first point about you know, how many times Herman said hands or arms, I did notice when I listened to the final episodes, remember we did this kind of in a hurry before I left to go out of town, um, and then I was actually listening to the finished product on the plane. I didn't get a chance to review it, um, and when I was listening to it in its entirety, I will say that I did kind of misstate because I heard in, in the end where I said that you know they're interchangeably, or he says arms several times, and that was incorrect, um, and part of that came from the, the process in, this, in the process of me writing that episode. Uh, the transcriber had initially messaged me and told me that she was she was irritated as she was reading the transcripts because Herman was saying arms and Deputy Garcia was saying hands. 
So I had actually started writing the episode before we got all of that stuff back. As it, then as I reviewed it, I realized that's not entirely true. Uh, that it, Well, it's, it's really not exact. And, and then when I talked to her, she said, no, as she got further into it, she realized that wasn't accurate. But it was just kind of a timing thing. But the reality is Herman used the word arms one time. And he used the word hands every other time. But if you listen to it, he and Garcia are referring to Sandy's hands being tied behind their back. To me, if you read it in context, it sounds to me like just a generic description of her hands being tied behind her back. Of the, just you know, not the exact position they were in, but just a just a description that she was tied up basically. And like I said in the episode, there's no way that they could have known. There's no way that of the deputy Garcia or Herman could have possibly known at that time that it was significant how precisely she was tied, the exact manner in which she was tied. However, the one time he uses arms, if you read that transcript, is the only time that he describes how her, quote, hands were tied, or monos, as he was saying. And that's when he said, I, th- I think, I, I, I don't want to say quote because I'm, I'm paraphrasing, but we can go back and look at the transcript. But he basically says her arms were up towards her back. So when he gets into kind of details, the only time, and the problem is, you know, Garcia never asked. So it's not like Garcia said, how was she tied? And he said she was tied at the hands. He was just saying her hi- her hands were tied behind her back. But then the one time when he described it and he gave any kind of description about the position, he says she was tied with her arms up towards her back, which is the way she was tied. As far as when it was revealed, um, I'm sure at some point it was revealed to the lawyers. But um, we're going to actually get into this pretty deeply this weekend uh, on Sunday in the main episode. But so I'm sure be- beforehand that it came up, but it really didn't come up for everybody else until the trial. When when Herman was on the stand at trial, he was finally asked what the police never asked him. And how was Sandy bound? How were her arms positioned? And he demonstrated as, as best he could. And then um, Allison Seacrest, one of the attorneys, came up and they kind of used her as a as a model to show the jury and the judge how Sandy was actually bound. And that's when everybody saw that she was bound with her arms at 90 degree angles with, you know, arms, forearms parallel to each other, wrist to elbow. Uh, that's where, that's where that was first made public, I guess, that that's because it's the first time that he was ever asked. And honestly, and we're going to get a little bit more into this again on Sunday, but you know, I, I don't think it really resonated with anybody and they got confused later and you'll hear that on Sunday, but you know, Barnett didn't even cross examine Herman. Which, you know, it's a good trial strategy because when you read the transcripts, which will be up on our website for Sunday's episode, when you read Herman's transcript, you'll see that was a little blip in his testimony. From reading it, my assumption is that Barnett's take on his testimony was that it didn't do any damage to her case. It didn't really resonate anything important with the jury. So she just let it go, which was the right move from, you know, in in an adversarial system, you're trying to win. That was probably the right move because in cross-examination, we could have got into more detail and beat more of it into the jury's head. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? 
In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Brenda says, were any of the rental homes searched or investigated, particularly the home occupied by a tenant with a girlfriend referred to in this episode? Yes, that rental home was eventually searched, but it was months later. From what I understand of the timeline there, there was the... Remember Liz had said a long time ago that they were evicting that particular renter. He was evicted uh, along with the girlfriend. They went into the house and the house was trashed. They saw what they believed were stab marks on the wall and they thought they even saw some blood. They called police and asked them to come out and investigate. They didn't. It was months later. I believe the lawyer emailed again. And then so it was like like this. I think that occurred in like February, and then they actually came out to look at the rental unit in May, if I'm not mistaken. I'm, I'm not positive about those dates, but they did eventually come out and they didn't find any. They, they, there was tools there from where they were trying to do some remodeling and stuff like that, but they didn't find anything useful. David says, was the pillow sham bunched around the chair in the master bathroom, ripped or torn? It did have a rip on it. I, I was actually just reading, I read a lot of trial testimony today or this week. I don't remember who it was, but somebody was testifying that, yeah, they saw it. It was, it was bunched up, and, and they, again, did not say it was under the chair. It was just bunched up next to the chair, and they said that uh, they had noticed that there was a rip. I think it was on the, on the bottom of it. We can see it in the crime scene photos, and, of course, there's no way to know if it was ripped prior to or, you know, if it was ripped on that night when it got moved or if you believe that Sandy staged this, if she did it while she was trying to, to stage a crime scene or whatever, but there was a rip in the sham. Kirsten says, did the detectives ever look into if there was a connection between the renters and the other home invasions in the area? No, the, the detectives didn't look into anything. And, and I know a lot of everybody's talking about Herman and Maria's or Herman's statement because that was the most recent episode. But Kurzel's testimony should have been eye-opening to a lot of people, depending, no matter which side of the fence you're on. I mean, this is a ridiculous, incompetent investigation. Whether you believe Sandy's innocent or guilty, forget that. You cannot not admit that this was a pathetic excuse of an investigation uh, because none of them were looked at. I mean, we've done more. I've had listeners do more investigating into other similar crimes and things like that and, 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 and trying to figure out where certain people are at and things than the detectives ever did. And that's insane. I cannot stress enough how insane it is. That is standard practice. In a crime like this, especially when you don't have any suspects, one of the first things you do is you look at, are there other similar crimes, other crimes with other MOs? They, they just didn't do anything, and they sure as hell didn't try to find connections. They didn't even talk to the renters, remember? It was 18 months later before they even interviewed the renters. That was after, a year after, over a year after, when Sandy's lawyers had emailed Garazal and told him that Sandy remembers seeing a woman in the bathroom, and she thinks that it might have been that female renter. I mean, literally the only lead they had. The, I mean, that's a legit, the, uh, an eyewitness from the crime scene says, I think it might have been her. And he didn't even interview her until a year and a half later at the request of the prosecutor a month or two weeks before they indicted Sandy. Julie says, we all know there were more than a few errors in the transcription of Sandy's interrogation. Were there similar Spanish to Spanish transcription errors with this interview? No, there really weren't. When I spoke with Maria, who did most of the, not Maria, uh, Melgar, Maria, 
Oh God, I'm so sorry, Maria. I, I don't have the, your last name on the tip of my tongue right now, but our, our listener who did the transcription, she said that there was a few little errors, but nothing significant uh, between the two, the, the transcription in this case. Now the transcription in Sandy's police interrogation was terrible. And one might think that maybe some of it was intentional because I mean, there was, there was things written that she didn't even say anything remotely close to what the transcription say she said, and they were all kind of the particular pieces that were incorrect looked very bad for Sandy. But then when you actually listen to what she said, that's not what she said. But whoever transcribed these interviews, Maria and Herman's, uh, according to our Maria, our listener Maria and uh, Azul, who helped um, helped her kind of double check the work, there were a few small little errors, but nothing, nothing serious, nothing important, nothing to worry about, really. All right, Nicole has a few questions. Has Sandy ever given a description as to the way she was tied? She hasn't. And as a matter of fact, right before recording this episode, Sandy called me and I I had seen that question. So I asked her. She said, no, nobody ever really asked her. I mean, I, I mean, I, I think she was probably asked, but she said she wasn't really sure. You know, she all, she said all, all I knew was, you know, I, I obviously my arms were behind my back. And I knew that I couldn't get to, I was trying to get to my, she said she was trying to get to her leg bindings uh, to try to start to untie herself. And she couldn't reach, she couldn't move. She just said that all she knew was her arms were behind her back and it was tight and she really couldn't move at all. And actually off topic, but on the topic of talking to Sandy, this is the first time I've had a chance to talk to her since the, we talked about the the televisions about a month ago. Remember where we found the, the Aaron's receipt that was provided was actually a receipt for the TV that was in the office not the bedroom. So I asked Sandy about that. You know, I asked her, you know, how many TVs? Was there just one? And and she said, no, there was two TVs. So, I mean, you can believe Sandy or not, but this is what she told me. There were two flat screen TVs, the one in the office, and then the one that was in the bedroom. She said she wasn't sure which one was which when she turned in that receipt um, because Jim bought it. And so on the receipt, it says Sandy Melgar, uh, the one from Aaron's Rental. And so I asked her about that, and she said she was there, but what had happened was she said it was her cousin's husband, Sandy's cousin's husband, in Laredo, Texas, which is kind of you know hours away from from Houston, where they would go visit family, worked at errands, and they would get TVs um, back, like came back from rentals that were damaged, and they would sell cheap. And she said one of the times when they were in Laredo visiting. They were talking to the cousin and the husband at some sort of family gathering, and he was telling about this, and he said that they had a bunch of flat-screen TVs that were super cheap because they were damaged, and so Jim wanted to go look at them because he wanted to get one for the office. So I asked Sandy if Jim went with her, and she said no. She she said she would describe it as she went with Jim. Jim was the one that was kind of into that stuff and wanted to go look. So Sandy and Jim in Laredo went to the Aaron's rental. And he picked out the TV. She said she didn't know anything about it. The only thing she knew about the TV was that the one they had bought, they got it for like $150, which it's like a from looking at the receipts and look at the model number, it's like a $400 TV. But they got it for like $150, and it was because the built-in DVD player didn't work, but they didn't care because it was going in the office. And, you know, they just they used an antenna for it. That's not what they really used it for. And they just used it to watch TV if they were in there working. Uh, and she said then the, the TV that was in the bedroom now, and again, in my conversation with Sandy, she didn't know which one was which when she found the one receipt. She didn't really know where Jim had put that TV, but she knew that the TV that they bought at Aaron's, the built-in DVD player did not work. 
And she also knew that the TV in the office, they didn't need a DVD player in there anyway. But the TV in the bedroom, she said she thinks it was maybe a little bit smaller than the one that was in the office. And she said for sure there was a DVD player hooked to that TV. And when I asked her what they used it for, she said they would just, you know, if they were laying in bed, they would watch TV. They had a DVD player connected to it, an external DVD player connected to the TV in the bedroom. Because sometimes they would watch TV while they were, or watch movies while they were in bed. And there was also the workout DVDs that sometimes the the gym or she would do workouts in the bedroom. Um, But she said there was most definitely two different TVs. There was the one in the bedroom and there was the one in the office. They were pretty similar, but she said she thinks the one in the bedroom was a little bit smaller. And the one in the bedroom did have a DVD player connected to it. So what had happened, how the receipt came about was when, you know, they had listed the items that were stolen. And, of course, the TV and the DVD player were gone. Uh, her friend Tammy Armstrong is the one that noticed that it was that it wasn't there. Sandy said she didn't know it wasn't there because she was there that night. Didn't notice it then. She left and then didn't go back to the house before it all got cleaned up. So she didn't know. But but Tammy said that TV was gone. And then of course they you know they packed things up and moved them out. They did still have the TV from the office, which Sandy again according to Sandy there were always two. That wasn't the TV from the bedroom moved into the office. There was always two. They had one where that they would watch. She said that the big one in the office was actually Liz's, um, that big giant uh, tube TV for those who looked at the crime scene videos. That was in there, but they didn't use that. They had that small, was kind of next to it, the small flat screen TV that they watched in there. And they had another second small flat screen TV in the bedroom that had the DVD player hooked to it. But so once they resettled, she had set up, you know, whatever TV was left, she had set, which we now know was the one from the office uh, that she had set up when she had settled into her new place where she was living. The lawyers were asking her, can you find receipts, paperwork for any of these items you know that are stolen? And Sandy had said that she knows that Jim had bought one of the TVs from Aaron's and Aaron's rental in Laredo. So she called the cousin's husband uh, who had helped them get the TV who worked at Aaron's. He didn't work there anymore, but he called a manager or somebody he knew and had him search back through the uh, the receipts because they knew about when or I don't know what information they used to do it. But then they found the receipt for her, and that's when she provided. But when she said when they when she provided it, she didn't know because Jim was the one who bought the TVs. Jim was the one who set the TVs up. She didn't really know anything about the TVs, so she didn't know when they, she got the receipt which TV it was for. And you know, I, I suppose she could have looked to see if it was the one in the office, but I, it just didn't cross her mind. She just finally got a receipt and turned it in to the lawyer to give to the police. And told them, here's a, here's a receipt for one of the TVs, but I don't know if it's the one that's missing from the bedroom. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Bradley says, I've heard more than once Sandy changed your story three times. Recently from the jury roundtable. What changes are they referring to? So for starters, the jury roundtable they were talking about was... It was bonus content from the Dateline NBC episode from back in January, not the 2021 that I was on, but the Dateline one prior to us starting the podcast. Uh, so when January, I'm talking about January 2018, a year ago. 
Um, there's some bonus content. It's on YouTube. Some people had shared it on the Facebook fan page. But there are four of the jurors sitting around a table talking about the case. And one of them said she she changed her story three times. I don't know what they're referring to. I mean, I've had conversations with with some people, and they said, you know, during her in one, and Barnett said during the interrogation, she kept changing her story. But th- that's why, if you remember back, that's why we had Jim Fitzgerald on, because I'd been told that by the prosecution. I've heard that from the jury. I think it was the, even the jury foreman that had said that. And then I listened to and watched the interrogation video over and over and over again, tracking it, taking notes point by point. And I didn't see where she ever changed her story. So I wanted to see what I was, if I was missing anything, that's why we brought Jim Fitzgerald on. And you heard him, he said the same thing. She was consistent with her story. She, she did not, she never changed her story. The changes they may be referring to is like the amount of time Jim was out of the tub, but that wasn't a change in the story, at least not in my opinion or Jim Fitzgerald's opinion. You know, when, when she says he got out of the tub, well, how long was he out of the tub? She says, I, I don't know. I wasn't wearing I, I, five minutes. I don't know. And then, you know, they could come back to it again. He got out of the tub. How long was he out of the tub? I don't know, five minutes. And well, well, did he have time to do this? I don't know. Maybe it was 10 minutes, maybe 15. I don't know. But she was consistently saying, I don't know how long he was out of the tub. I know he got out. A little bit of time went out. And then I got out of the tub. And when they were trying to pin her down on, on exact details, she had suggested maybe it was five, maybe it was 10, maybe it was 15 throughout the interview, but she didn't change her story. I, again, I never heard her change her story. Jim Fitzgerald never heard her change her story. Apparently, at least one, if not all, some of the jurors heard her change her story. But I think that if they went back and listened again, they would see that she really did not ever change her story. Noel says, Bob, I would love to hear your thoughts on two conflicting concepts you mentioned. Documentation by investigators is vital since human memory can be flawed, so investigators are trained to document thoroughly, as discussed in last week's follow-up but that written documentation by investigators is considered hearsay in court. This feels like a dangerous double standard that both undermines industry standards and discourages best practices. What are your thoughts? Well, I think that our system, and again, I want to clarify, I'm not a lawyer, and and I'm going to be straight up with you guys. This element of the law and uh, rules of evidence confuses me because sometimes a report can get put in and sometimes it can't. And I think that's why uh, that whole issue came up with Carazal. Mac was just trying to get the report in. And so you have to confirm that they're the one that wrote it. It's their own thoughts and through a voir dire process. And then they can come in sometimes. Uh, typically not. When I personally have testified, you know, what what I would do is pull before I had to go into court, I would I would pull my reports and study them, review them, refresh my memory about the case. And that's why you always try to write really good narratives. Because you may have to go back and, you know, do exactly that. And then when I would get to court, I would have the report with me in front of me. And oftentimes what would ha- what happened to Carazal is exactly what would happen to me. You know, an attorney would say, you know, at what time did you show up on the scene? And then I would say, can I refer to my notes? And they'd say, sure. And then I would go back to my report, look at my report. And then they'd ask me again, what time did you show up on the scene? I showed up at 7.55 or, you know, whatever time that it was. And that's how it's typically done. But again, that's that's based on assuming that the law enforcement official or fire official in my in my particular instance is an honest person and is trying to do the right thing. Because you, you see that in every case that we've done, every trial transcript that we've posted, you see it all the time. That if they ask somebody a question, a, a police officer, and um, they don't remember the answer, 
or they say, no, I didn't say that. They'll hand them a report and say, can you read that right there, uh, the second paragraph to refresh your memory? Okay, now let me ask you again. And then they say, you know, they, they correct themselves because they just saw it in the report, you know, whether they're trying to do something dishonest and they've been busted or they're just, they honestly didn't remember and they see it and, and they give the correct information then. This, as I said earlier, this is the first time I've ever seen in any trial transcript I've looked at where he looks at a report, confirms that he wrote it, those were his own words, and then the prosecutor helps him get off the hook with it, and then he says, nope, I don't know, I never said that. Even though it's on a piece of paper that he's literally holding in his hands with his signature on the bottom of it. Mary says, were the investigating detectives present when Herman and Maria were questioned? No, no, they weren't. And that's why, you know, again, it wasn't an investigative interview. It was simply a witness statement. That's all those were. Those were not I wouldn't call them interviews. I wouldn't call them interrogations. That was the recording of a witness statement. That's all Herman's interview was. Okay, Bob, that's it for this week's follow-up. Uh, real quick, let's talk about the plans we have for the next couple of weeks. Yeah, so I want to prepare you guys. Uh, the situation for the next six weeks is going to be a little strange. So obviously we are, right now, we're still finishing up the trial transcripts and the initial investigation. You know, we're, we're, we're very closely approaching the end of that process with Sandy's case, and then we'll be getting into the new investigation. But the new investigation requires a lot more field work. Um, we're also trying to prepare to get back to season five for when we're done with this. We're hoping that when we finish season six, we can go back and do the second half of season five. Um, I don't know if the timing's going to work out on that, but there's some things happening with that case too, which also require quite a bit of field work. And then we still have Jesse and Ed's case going on. So the long and short of it is, I already, in the next six weeks, I had a week planned a vacation. As most of you know, my wife, Becky, is a Beachbody coach, and she won a prize this year. We're going to uh, a cruise. We're going on a cruise for a week, which conveniently is right smack dab in the middle of our shitstorm of a schedule. And so that's one of the weeks. And then there was, I think, with all the, the travel that we have booked for stuff that I have to do for this case and at least two other cases, for the next six weeks, I'm going to be in the office, what do we say, two weeks. I thought six. it was one week, not a six. Well, we got next week, <clears throat> I'm here, and then I'm gone for two weeks. <laughs> Let's just, why, don't you, why don't you pick it back up? <laughs> and for the next no, this season. is fine. This is fine. This is how confusing it is. <laughs> so I'm here for a week. I'm gone for two weeks. I'm here for a week. I'm gone for three weeks. Right. Uh, and then once I'm back, things will get back to normal. So I, I'm only telling you guys that to, to, let you, to give you uh, a heads up about where things are going and during those six weeks. Now, we, we, we talked about whether we want to just take a month off to, to kind of catch ourselves up and decided that we didn't want to do that because there's, there is a lot of little things. So we tried to, by the end of this phase of the investigation, uh, to get through everything, all the trial transcripts. So there's a lot of little bitty pieces. There's a lot of people that, you know, testified for five minutes here or there or gave a witness statement and there's, you know, some new leads that are out there, things like that. But but I want to I want to hit all of those little bullet points. The basic plan is I'm going to keep banging away at going through the trial transcripts, writing episodes. I'll be recording mostly from hotel rooms a lot. Some of it we'll do here. Some of it I'll be doing in hotel rooms. Um, but we're going to be getting through the rest of that. Uh, and we may do some interviews, and and some of them will be case related. Honestly, it, it, some of them may not be case related. I just reached out to a friend of mine that is a big listener of the show. You guys have all heard of this person, but they have a new um, TV project they just put out. And I thought that would be a cool person to for you guys to hear from. May not be case related. So what I'm telling you is for the next six weeks, 
We're going to be putting content out for you every week. And we're, for the most part, going to be sticking to crossing T's and dotting I's to finish up all the loose ends in the original investigation in this case. And again, we may pepper in some interviews with some people to give you guys something to listen to every week to make sure there's something out there for you. Um, but just, 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 I just want you to be aware that these next six weeks for us are going to be a struggle. You know, it's, it, it's a, it's a full 40, 50 hour week for Mike and I to come in here and make two podcasts a week, just a main and a follow up. And so anytime we're out of town, then we have to kind of double that up. And if we have multiple weeks out of town, it turns into a very scary endeavor. We just got some new equipment. So I'll have a mobile recording studio kind of with me while I'm out. But I just wanted to give you guys a heads up about that, that if you if you hear an episode in the next six weeks and maybe it doesn't sound as good as it normally does, it's probably because I recorded it in a hotel room or, you know, if it's a little shorter than we normally put out, it's just because of scheduling stuff like that. Or, you know, you're wondering why you're hearing an interview with someone who really has nothing to do with this case. That could also be the reason for for some of that. But we're, we, we made the decision to go ahead and keep putting the content out. I really hoping throughout the six weeks we're going to get through the rest of the old investigations into Sandy's case because we got some really, really cool new developments um, that I think are going to be very meaningful for us in her case that we're going to get to after that. But we need to make sure that we get it's just our process. We go through everything before we move into the old stuff. But if you know anything that comes up during that time that might be part of the new investigation, I think you guys need to hear right away. I will make sure you do that. We'll put that out. And also that'll give me a chance to breathe and not have to write an episode for a week. Yeah, that'll be nice. Um, I know for sure there's a couple of people we're trying to interview right now, and if we get them, we will get them in in the next several weeks. So anyway, that just want to let you guys know that's what's going on. We really, uh, really, really appreciate uh, all of your support and all the love we get you got from you guys on social media, and, and we're still going to keep banging things out. But again, don't get mad at us if you get a little bit shorter episode or it sounds a little funny because we're doing our best. All right, thanks, everybody, and uh, we'll see you next week. Truth and Justice is an NBI Studios production and is distributed by Wondery. Mike Bussing is our executive producer, and all music for the show was created and composed by PutThemInASong.com. Thank you to Amanda Meyer with Willow Photo and Design for designing and creating our Friday follow-up logo. Our banner images and type font across all of our logos was created by Tate Krupa of Red Swan Graphic Design. You can find more of Tate's work on Etsy. Thank you to Katie Ross of CreatedInTandem.com for designing, creating, managing, and maintaining our website, TruthAndJusticePod.com, where you can view all photos and documents discussed in every episode. Thank you to our transcription team, Britta Bliss, Sarah Colby, Rachel Timberman, and Liz Rose. And as always, thank you to all of you for all of your engagement and support. If you like the show and you'd like to support us, you can do so in a number of ways. To financially support the show, you can go to Patreon.com slash TruthAndJustice. On the Patreon page, you can pledge as little as $1 per month, and we also have reward levels on Patreon that include access to behind-the-scenes videos of the tapings of our Friday follow-up episodes, Truth and Justice Army t-shirts and hats, and even the opportunity to co-host one of our Friday follow-up episodes. You can also help us out by going to iTunes and leaving us a 5-star rating and review. And lastly, you can always support us by supporting the companies that sponsor this program. But the most important thing that you can do is engage in the investigations. You can keep in touch with us through our email at theories at truthandjusticepod.com. 
like our Facebook page, or join in on the conversation on the Truth and Justice Podcast fans page. And for all of you tweeters, you can connect with us on Twitter. The show's handle is at TruthJusticePod, and my personal Twitter handle is at BobRuffTruth. And for more personal interactions, feel free to follow me on Instagram at TruthJusticePod. And don't forget, we always have our 24-7 voicemail line open for questions, comments, and tips on the case. That phone number is 269-224-2833. However you do it, stay engaged, stay in touch. But as for now, we're signing off. I'm Bob Ruff. And I'm Mike Bussing. And this has been Truth and Justice. So we got 10 seconds of silence, then the ad marker, and then... Oh, oh okay. shut this guy off. It's not a problem. It's okay. It's okay. That made the cut. Yeah. All right, thanks, everybody, and uh, we'll see you next week. You even did the uh. I, I like know. that. You even did the and uh, just like I did. That's a wrap. That's it. Say goodbye to the dish and hello to Sky Stream, the new way to get Sky over Wi-Fi. So you can get unmissable Sky shows like The Last of Us and Succession, as well as Netflix and Discovery Plus, and loads more, all in one subscription for £26 a month. Oh, and next day delivery with no upfront fee. Skystream. TV simplified. Head to sky.com. Requires Skystream and broadband minimum speed, 10 megabits per second, 18-month minimum term. Cut-off times apply for next day delivery. Excludes bank holiday. 18 plus. Terms apply.